and uh, and we're just stuck inside all the time, you know, doing this or that thing or watching this or that program, and you know, our our relationship to the world that God has made in its beauty and its glory just shrivels up and dies. And um, I'll tell you, it's just beautiful to get out in the woods, and you need to get your kids outside. Your kids need to be outside, either playing by themselves or, you know, doing something, taking them. I mean, we went to, um, you know, we just do these random things. We were like, well, we need a place to go mushroom hunting. So we drove over to uh, uh, Upper Cascades Park, and we just parked at a spot, and we're like, I don't know, this woods looks good, and it's public land, so here we go. Off into the woods, you know, climbing, climbing down a hill that was so steep, I was like fearing for my wife and... And, uh, you know, and then we got down to a little creek, and we kind of walked down that creek bed and, um, you know, found another creek where you could kind of walk out in the middle and skip rocks and just, and just play and just have just the most wonderful, simple time. Um, and, uh, you know, your kids love that, and they need things like that. They need things like that. It's important. You're going to tie down inside for, you know. And uh, you don't want your relationship with God's world to, to shrivel. Um, to shrivel up so that you miss out on the joys of what he's made. And, uh, and there's a lot of joy in uh, finding a mushroom. So you should try it sometime. I'll take you. I'll take you. The season is ending, but maybe next year. Um, hey, I want to remind us also about uh, just a simple thing in the life of a church family. Um, you know, oftentimes, kind of the program mentality of Americans today is to show up to church and think, what's in it for me? And oftentimes, that comes across very kind of subtly. You know, it's like, it's kind of like this. It's like, well, I just didn't really like that song, or, you know, I didn't really connect with the worship today. And, um, and you don't realize just how selfishly you're thinking about coming to church and gathering as a church family because um, you're not thinking that song that didn't connect with you or maybe that song that wasn't your favorite, how important that was to somebody else. Like Trust and Obey is an important hymn that the children of our church have learned. And with the children of our church present, it's important to sing some songs that they're more familiar with at times. And so um, it's important that when you come, you're, I mean, I don't love every single song that we sing at church. I don't have, like, our list of songs that we sing at church isn't my, you know, top 40 favorite song list. It's not how this works, right? Um, We're thinking about the church. You know, just like I mentioned to that, this kind of the same principle to you about preaching. You know, there's a lot of things in preaching that may not necessarily be the thing for you that morning, but may be really important for somebody else, and that's one of the reasons I may be saying it, because there's somebody that's important for it. And it's important that you have just a mindset that is others-focused and um, love-oriented in the life of a church family, and that this is the principle for which you live in the church family. And these are simple ways in the gathering of the church that you can practice them, and you can discipline your selfishness, and discipline, you know, kind of a, just a, a self-interest, and you can think about others more than yourself. Also, um, before we get to the passage this morning, just want to ask your forgiveness that we will not be taking the Lord's table this morning. We were short on uh, communion cups, didn't realize it till this morning, 
no one to blame but myself for that and uh, my failed leadership and making sure that happens. So please forgive me for that. The Lord's table is really important in the life of our church. So we will, Lord willing, uh, get that taken care of and figure that out for next week. Also, if you would like to be the person who ensures the, you know, that we always have that and are regularly checking that, we'd be glad to have you, you know, be faithful and participate in that um, opportunity to serve our church. So, okay. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Title of the message is Dads, Get Your Kids Outside. No, that has nothing to do with the message. I have been thinking about it a lot lately, though. I think when I've been out in the woods and I've just been thinking, why don't I see more people in the woods? Why don't I hear more people talking about being out in the woods? Why don't I, you know, like, why don't we just hear, you know, I know everybody's not wired the same way and everybody has to do what I do, but I'm, there's still just a value um, in, in that reality. So I've been thinking a lot about it lately, so I guess it just needed to come out today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just such a delightful church family. Um, Thank you that uh, they put up with all of my idiosyncrasies with patience and kindness and come with hearts to, to your church to worship their God, um, to worship our God and Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to see his name exalted. And they, they come hungry to hear your voice. They come hungry to hear the voice of their great shepherd, the overseer of their souls, who feeds them with rich food and who satisfies the desires of their hearts. And uh, may you give us good news and remind us of your saving grace this morning in ways that will return in glory and honor um, to your name forever and ever. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message actually is The God Who Seeks and Saves the Lost. The God who seeks and saves the lost. Before we begin in Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I just want to share my testimony. Some of you have heard it several times, and some of you have never heard it. Um, But my story is a story of God seeking and saving the lost. And this really is what being a Christian is. Uh, Being a Christian is being someone who God has sought and saved. And um, I grew up in a, in a non-Christian home, just kind of your average middle-class family in America. My dad had started working in a factory when he was 17. He worked there all the way till just before um, he passed in when he was 44 years old. Slowly moved up, no college degree, worked hard. Um, eventually he was a department head, my, um, uh, who probably, you know, back then didn't make as much money, even though the money went further. Than it does today. Um, my mom was a nurse. She stayed at home while we were little and then worked part-time for a while and then full-time while we were, my brother and I were in school. Um, we, uh, growing up, um, kind of a, was pretty normal, you know, in, in, in the way we think of it. You know, I went to school, played sports. My parents took me to sports and games and baseball and soccer and my brother and 
Um, they kept us pretty busy, got to middle school, realized maybe some things weren't as normal in my home as maybe I had thought they were when I was younger, you know, because when you kind of hit like 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you start to kind of pay attention to things more, and you start to form opinions about things, and start to see what's really going on, and uh, some of your, you know, your, your kind of knowledge of good and evil grows, and your childhood innocence, you kind of move, begin moving on to um, more of a beginning of an adult mindset, and I uh, started to see things weren't really as normal as I thought. My dad was drinking way too much, and he was an alcoholic, and through middle school, it just increased and got worse and worse and worse. And what I did in order to just kind of deal with that reality, with the hunger of a father who wasn't satisfying my desire for father, for a father, for fatherly affection at that point in my life, um, I bought a BMX bike and I, you know, did, did my own thing and got out of the house and went and rode my bike all over Purdue's campus and... Um, built giant bike ramps all over our property so that we just get outside and, and ride. And um, I wish I had some pictures of some of the crazy we did to be able to show you, but people didn't have, you know, iPhones back then. You know, it was long enough ago. It was, don't think I'm just young up here. Come on. <laughs> I was a grown teenager before iPhones. And... Uh, um, and so my dad was an alcoholic, and so, our, you know, the day was like, go to school, come home, I don't know, find something to do, jump on my bike, go ride, because if I stayed at home, it was like, sit at home, I don't know, dad checks out with alcohol, the TV turns on, maybe I just sit in the chair and watch the TV all evening. And that made me insane, so I had to get outside and get on a bike and just go do my own thing. And, and by um, my sophomore year of high school, the tension not just between... Um, you know, my father and I, but also obviously my mom and my dad was kind of at fever pitch for uh, probably some good reasons at that point. And um, they ended up separating. But I had never really been to church. I was not interested in church at that point. I, I was an atheist as much as of an atheist as you can be at that point in your life. And, um, you know, fun for me was getting my uh, my license to, you know, getting a job so that I could pay for a truck and a bike so that I could put my bike in the back of the truck and go wherever I wanted with my buddies to go ride. Very much like you think about, like, skate culture. Very similar. Um, just on a bike. And, um, but, and so, you know, we delighted in, you know, visiting construction sites very late on a Friday or Saturday night and, um, or a Sunday afternoon, I guess, one time. And, loading up the truck with lumber and taking that home. And, you know, my mom was always shocked at how I could afford all of the wood that showed up at our house to build bike ramps. And uh, she probably should have been shocked because I couldn't afford that much lumber. And so I was a thief. I was a thief, and, you know, I just never got caught for anything that I did. And um, that probably wasn't actually good for me, but either way, I was a thief. I was an atheist. I was proud I was hostile to the idea of there being a God and to Christians who thought there was a God. And, you know, I don't have courage just because of Jesus' grace and of some great faith. I, I have courage because of the way just God made me. So it wouldn't have been that odd for me to even tell the, a Christian they were a fool, you know, um, um, for believing in God. And, and so when I was... 
what started to change everything for me was God just humbled me through a series of circumstances in life. Really four main circumstances, but when I was a sophomore in high school, my parents separated. Um, the following fall, my junior year in high school, my grandfather passed away. I was uh, 16 at the time. That was the closest I had ever been to, you know, closest to a loved one who had died that I ever been. It was the, the most, um, it was the first time in my life I ever started to question the fact that I'm not going to live forever. And what happens beyond this life? What happens after you die? And that question just started bouncing around um, in the grief of losing my grandfather. A couple months after that, I had an uncle who was in the hospital, and, and he had terrible, terrible both disease and heart condition. And literally over that Christmas break, my junior year of high school, he coded 36 times in the hospital. And um, it must have been absolutely terrible. I mean, his wife was a nurse at the hospital, you know, having to hear the alarms go off every single time, um, calling in the help to see him revived. And and so I'm wrestling with this question of what happens after you die, and my uncle is literally wrestling with life and death. And then I'm kind of at the point where my parents have got divorced, my grandpa's died, um, you know, my uncle is on his deathbed, seemingly, and I'm just kind of wrestling with how could my life really get any worse? How could my life get any worse than this? And what is happening? Because I don't see this kind of madness happening in all of my friends' lives you know, in, in high school. And um, it was kind of at the point where I thought things couldn't, couldn't get any worse that uh, I was actually out snowboarding and um, someone came and said, hey, you need to go home. Your, your, mom, your mom needs you at home right now. And so I went home. There was a few family members there. And, you know, it's kind of those moments where you just know, like, something's bad. You just know. Nobody was crying or anything at the moment. We were just like, this is just an odd situation. And I just said, I just said, what's, what's going on? Obviously, something's not good, you know? I don't know. The discernment, I guess, that I still have. I had some back then. And, um, and my mom just said, well, they found your dad. They found your dad. And, um, you know, you, I remember just kind of falling back against the countertop in our kitchen and uttering a few words and just... You don't know how to think about that. You're just, I'm just kind of going to shock. And um, so he passed away in March 9th of 1999. He, I was 16, just getting ready to turn 17. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. But I wasn't just wrestling with the question of what's going to happen with, to me when I die. I was starting to really wrestle with the meaninglessness of life. Is this it? You know, is this it? You live. You know, you wreck your life, and you die. And that was, because that's what I was seeing. You live, you wreck your life, and you die. And if you ever wondered why I'm a melancholy personality, well, that's kind of how my mind works. You know, and uh, I'm like a walking book of Ecclesiastes sometimes. But is that it? You live, you wreck your life, and you die. Is all this just meaningless? What's going to happen to me when I die? And when I die, will it have all just been meaningless? And it was around that time that some college students kind of started to write a friend who went to some um, youth ministry meetings called Young Life, and they just kind of invited me along, and I started going, and the college students were there just started reaching out to me and loving on me and, um, and just having a great time going and uh, not really knowing why I was going, 
you know, just going to have a good time, I guess. And I signed up for the camp over the summer in Minnesota, and I, rem I very specifically remember on the Friday before we were leaving to go to Camp Castaway in Minnesota, I remember thinking this actual thought, are they going to talk about God here at this camp? You know? And um, everything else looked awesome, but that part I was kind of like, I think I can just endure that part. But everything else will be awesome. And so, and for me to actually sign up to go to something like that was just completely outside of my character. I mean, I was the kid in high school who just walked through, I was like one class to the next class, no smile on my face. Everybody's like, why don't you smile? I'm like, what is there to smile about? You know? And why don't you stop smiling so much? <laughs> That's funny. I never said that to anybody. I just thought that now. <laughs> Stories get embellished with time. And so, you know, and so I was just, just kind of like, get up, get through it, you know. And, um, and so went to the camp, and I heard about Jesus for the first time, really clearly. And I heard about uh, Jesus' love for me, and I heard about my sin, and I heard about um, God's judgment over sin, for the wages of sin is death. And I heard about Jesus who loved me and who came for me and died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I heard that I um, needed to repent and believe the good news, and I would be saved. And I wasn't pursuing, you know, I wasn't interested in going to hear about who God was and his son and what he had done for me. I had no interest in that at all. Um, I went, but, and God's spirit convicted me of something that's really important. Not just that, um, uh, how to fix the things that were awful in my life. Um, I didn't just come away or think in that week that my greatest problem was the loss of my dad and my parents' divorce and all of these kind of... I didn't come away thinking those were my greatest problems anymore. I came away understanding my greatest problem was my sin. And my sin had separated me from God. But that God was pursuing me in sending Christ uh, to seek and save me. And He would save me if I would repent and believe the good news. And that was the greatest problem. And that week... The Spirit convicted me of my sin, you know. I wasn't really all that hard. It was all over the place. And, uh, um, and I repented and I believed and God saved me and um, everything began to change. Starting with this, I now knew exactly what happens when a person dies because the Bible teaches me um, what happens when a person dies. For the wages of sin is death. There is judgment of God for all who have rejected God. But for all who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ... Um, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That I, had, I now had confidence that I had life with Jesus forever. And that was the only thing that mattered to me beyond this life. And then the second thing was, life is not meaningless. It's not meaningless at all. It's just not meant for you to be lived for your own self and your own glory. Your life is meant to be lived for the glory of Almighty God. Almighty God. And he's not just up there distant. He actually has come to me in Jesus Christ and uh, is walking with me. And so um, from that point forward, everything changed. I was now 
an atheist on Friday, and by the end of the week, I was a Christian. I remember walking into my house after camp was over, and you know, I don't remember what I said to my mom that prompted this question, but um, it was always important to my mom that I believed in God, even though at the time she was not a Christian. She's like, well, do you, do you believe in God now? And I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, um, and everything else changed. I didn't grow up dreaming about being a pastor. I mean, if you would have told me at 16, 17 years of age that one day I was going to plant a church in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was going to pastor that church, and, um, and uh, I mean, I, and, and love Jesus and, and, and seek to follow Jesus by his grace, I mean, I just would have thought you were an absolute clown. I mean, they just, just laughed you off the, uh, off the face of the earth. But by God's grace, and by this, by the pursuit of Jesus Christ to save my soul, here I am. Here I am. And that's what we come to when we come to Zacchaeus. We come to a story of conversion. We come to a story of Jesus seeking a sinner, a wretched sinner. I mean a horribly wretched sinner. Coming to seek and save a horribly wretched sinner. And one thing that I, um, when we come to the context here, I'm I'm not going to read it first, we're just going to work through it, but when we come to the context There's something that's really important that we remember, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus means righteous one. But it's a complete irony. Because everything about the man is unrighteous. See what it says? It says he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, right there should be this moment. If you were reading, I know we hear preaching and we hear kind of it in bits and chunks and we've kind of heard the Gospel of Luke over a long period of time, right? And so we've kind of forgotten a lot of stuff. Um, But if you were just reading through Luke and you saw that phrase and he was rich, you know, it wasn't that long ago, if you were reading chapter 18 and then chapter 19, you would have seen the rich young ruler and you would think, "Uh uh-oh, here's a moment where someone else who's rich, is going to walk away from Jesus or cause a problem for Jesus or you know, be a thorn in the flesh of Jesus or think so highly of themselves um, that they have no need of Jesus and that they would, this is going to be another example of exactly what's going to happen there. But Zacchaeus is one of just in a, one positive example and many negative examples of Jesus' interaction with the rich. And not only is he, he rich, he's, is he rich, he's a chief tax collector. Now, um, that word for chief tax collector is only used of Zacchaeus in all of Greek literature uh, for like 400 years. And I think the point of that, that he's a chief tax collector, is to illustrate the point of who Zacchaeus is. He is slimy. He's slimy. He's not just a tax collector who is charging more than he ought in order to make a rich living off of the people and oftentimes and most often the poor. He's the chief tax collector, which apparently is something like the guy who trains everyone on how to do that well. You know, in, in I don't know, was it a pyramid scheme where, you know, he got a cut off of everybody he trained and how to do it and what money they got and... I mean, it's something just slimy. Slimy. I mean, this is not a guy who is an upstanding citizen. And you have to remember, uh, more than likely, he's a Jew. 
He's a Jew. In fact, most often the tax collectors were Jews. And so he's, he's not just awful in the way he takes advantage of people in order to make himself rich. He's also in cahoots with Rome, turning against his own people. And so this is one of the reasons why tax collectors were so despised, because to, you're, like, you're, you're in cahoots with Rome to get rich, and you're just destroying us. So this is a disreputable character, Zacchaeus. And so, but the story, everything changes about this story from what you would expect Jesus' interactions with the rich to be. Because so many of them, so many of them, what what did Jesus say? It's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, to inherit the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, and then then who can be saved? Right? And you, you flip back and you see... But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so what you have here as the story begins to change is you have this man, Zacchaeus, who's going to seek Jesus out. And in this conversion story of Zacchaeus, this rich man, you have Jesus doing the impossible thing. You have the camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus is God. He is the one who makes these impossible things possible. That's why I titled The God Who Seeks and Saves the Lost. Verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. That's something rich, proud, the proud rich, that's something they never do. There are humble rich people. They're hard to find, but there are humble rich people. But the proud rich would never do something like this. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Why do you think Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was? You know, bring yourself into the story. Jesus is is entering the city of Jericho. There's people around. There's people are hearing that Jesus is coming to Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, the triumphal entry is in this chapter. It's not long before Jesus actually walks into Jerusalem. The crowds are gathering. There's kind of an anticipation, a buzz about who Jesus is along the streets. You know, just like last week, what do the people want? Do they just want to see Jesus? Was it just kind of, oh, here's a celebrity? Was it, um, did, they, did they have some desire to be healed themselves? Was there some issue they wanted Jesus to fix? Did some of them want his actual spiritual healing touch? We don't know, but we know this. Here a rich man seemingly um, runs to the crowd to see because he's seeking who Jesus was. And I just want to tell you, and young people, there's nothing more important for you to do in this life than to seek to know who Jesus is. There is whatever you have to do to seek who Jesus is, then do it. Because here you have this rich man, and is precocious the word? Is precocious the right word? You know, you think about a person tidied up. You know, he's a chief tax collector. You know, maybe like the slimy side of business. Probably dresses nice. The thought that he's going to kind of run out to the crowd 
with a real interest in seeking who Jesus was um, doesn't make any sense in kind of a normal scenario or what's normal to what we often see. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. So here, we don't have a blind guy stuck in the back of the crowd who is kind of um, rejected. Here we have a small guy who's slimy in the back of the crowd, and he can't see who Jesus is, but just like blind Bartimaeus, who cried out, he didn't let the obstacle of the crowd keep him from who Jesus is at this moment. Whatever it was in Zacchaeus, whether it was the weight of guilt on his conscience for all the things he'd done, whether it was wondering if Jesus would you know, be the one who actually would save him from all of his guilt and burden, whether it was, you know, what was it that brought him out there? Obviously, some interest in who Jesus was. Was there any, was there any chance in this picture of Zacchaeus being this detestable, disreputable, sinful, wicked outcast of small stature who can't even see over the crowd, was there any chance Jesus might pay some attention to him? Was there any chance Jesus might actually show him a kindness that absolutely no one else would? Realize the tax collectors were in the category of murderers and robbers. That's how the Jews thought about tax collectors. They're in the category of murderers and robbers. Who's ready to show any kindness to someone like that? Did he think Jesus might? So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. Now we have... Uh, the majority of detail that we're going to get about Zacchaeus because the focus now turns to what Jesus does. Zacchaeus, the rich man who's kind of out of character here, running down the road, past the crowd, climbing a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus could have just walked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, you just got to knock all this wickedness off. could have come up to him and kind of done what the rest of the people were doing and just kind of went, Ugh. Could have just ignored him. I mean, think about yourself and all of the people who have done wicked things that you would just prefer to ignore. Could have just ignored him.
That's not how my Jesus treats people, though. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must, I must stay at your house today. Right. Now, Jesus, it wasn't common practice for Jesus to just invite himself into someone's home. He's often found in people's homes. He's often found in, the, in homes. I mean, we have, we've seen in Luke's gospel that um, he often ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners that always upset the Pharisees so much. It's interesting here, is Jesus going to be a friend of the rich? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Can you imagine? Imagine what in the world would be going through Zacchaeus' mind? I mean, I don't think Jewish rabbis and rich tax collectors were like two peas in a pod. I don't think those two would have been the two that would have most easily gotten along. But here in Jesus, you don't just have any Jewish rabbi. You have God who seeks and saves the lost. And so what does he do? I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to spend some time with you. And Zacchaeus, we're going to talk. So what does Zacchaeus do? This must have been an amazing moment. Coming to my house today? Jesus, don't you know who I am? I mean, you know my name, but do, don't you know who I am? You do know who I am, don't you? You know exactly who I am. You know exactly who I am, and you know everything I've done. Shouldn't you be staying away from me in my house? There's a lot of people in this crowd, Jesus, who are around me who haven't done what I've done. They haven't ripped people off the way I've ripped people off. They haven't trained other people to rip people off the way I've ripped people off. Why, don't, why wouldn't you go... Why wouldn't you invite yourself into their house today? And so this moment of Jesus' kindness and mercy and grace to this wicked man, Zacchaeus. It's not that he's not wicked that Jesus stops. It's to demonstrate that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And there's this kind of urgent moment. I need to stay at your house today. And then all these verbs piled up here. He, he hurried and he, did, he, he obeyed Jesus immediately. He hurried and he came down and he he's, receives Jesus gladly into his home. And so this is all spinning in Zacchaeus' mind that Jesus is showing kindness, but, but all of, no one ever showed kindness to me. All they ever did was disdain me. But Jesus is in my house now, showing me a kindness that I clearly don't deserve. 
and the crowd, when they see it, they all grumbled. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Which is true. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The difference between the self-righteous crowd and Jesus is Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come as the great physician for the righteous, but for sinners. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. It's hard to imagine the kind of grace that Jesus is showing Zacchaeus here. Showing him, Zacchaeus, your life matters. And it matters a lot to me. Zacchaeus, you've done some wicked things, but I have the cure for you. Zacchaeus, I'm not going to ignore the wickedness you've committed, but I know I would long to forgive you of all of these sins. I would love to make myself at home in your house. Isn't it true? Somebody said, I read this years ago, for sinners such as us, God could have chosen to dwell anywhere in the universe and He chose your heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory, He makes His home with you. J.C. Ryle said, God desires... God desires to be known more as Savior than as Judge. That's a tough one, huh? God desires to be known in 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 the, in the heart of God is a desire to be known as Savior. That He is a God who comes and seeks and saves the lost if he desired more to be known as judge, (laughs) oh, we probably wouldn't be reading about Zacchaeus. And we probably wouldn't be gathered here. Because the great redemption that God has ordained from the foundations of the earth to make a people for himself would not be the primary plan of God to glorify himself in this world. just let you sit on what J.C. Ryle said for a while. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, I think it's important that you understand this. Jesus didn't show up in Zacchaeus' home and say, okay, Zacchaeus, here's the deal. you got to give half your goods to the poor and... Um, all the people that you have wronged, you need to repay fourfold. As if, as if that was all that Zacchaeus had to do. That wasn't, that wasn't what happened here. It's also not 
This is also not the rich young ruler where Jesus is saying, man, Zacchaeus, some things in your life that I need to tell you about. And this isn't Zacchaeus going, but Lord, I, I, I give to the poor half of what I have and I repay who I have wronged fourfold. It's not a defense of Zacchaeus. He's not giving a defense of himself here to the Lord. What this is, is this is, this is Zacchaeus' repentance. This is a picture of his repentance. And it probably should, you should understand it like this. When, when he says, and I have, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, uh, behold, Lord, the half of my goods, when it says I give, you probably should understand that as I will give. This is going to be the fruit of my repentance. <coughs> for the wrongs I've committed. This is going to be the fruit of my repentance. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. There was no requirement in the law necessarily for Zacchaeus to restore fourfold. What was common in the Old Testament law in the book of Exodus was um, like an additional fifth. Restore what's wronged and give an additional fifth. But Zacchaeus is, is giving this picture of his desire to make right everything that he's done wrong because he doesn't care about the money anymore. What Zacchaeus cares about, the, the rich man who finally doesn't care about only his money, who cares about his soul, who cares about his sins being forgiven, who cares about having Jesus if he has nothing else. Zacchaeus, I'll restore it fourfold. serious about ridding his life of the sin that has consumed him. And what does Jesus say to him? (coughs) Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. He's not just a son of Abraham in the flesh. Zacchaeus has become a, a true son of Abraham. The truest sons of Abraham are the sons of Abraham who have faith. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Francis Thompson was a poet, late 1800s. His life was a train wreck. He was addicted to opiates. He lived in London on the streets, homeless as a beggar seeing every hellish thing and every back alley of London that can be imagined. Um, one of the things that was fascinating about him is he eventually came to know Christ and um, became an incredible poet. And he wrote a poem called The Hound Dog of Heaven. And I won't read it now. It's fairly lengthy. And it's, it's honestly not that easy to, to follow because the language is a little tough. The word choice is tough. But the whole point of the poem is that Francis Thompson was running away and fleeing from God and fleeing from God. I fled him. I fled him. I fled him. He says at the beginning of that poem. And he was fleeing from God. And and, and he seemed to have a sense that God was coming after him, that God was pursuing him, that it almost as if he could hear the, you know, the paws of the hound dog, you know, and the, the howls of the hound dog pursuing him in his life for whatever reason. And some of you will kind of have that, kind of have a sense of that, kind of have a sense of that. And, um, and whether it was some people who just kind of kept coming by, who, 
you know, would talk to him about Jesus and that gave him this sense that God was pursuing him. And, and, um, but I love the title the, of the poem, the, the Hound Dog of Heaven. And Francis Thompson went on to, his, his poetry impacted G.K. Chesterton, impacted J.R.R. Tolkien significantly in their view of God and their understanding of Christ and His Gospel. Because God came to save the opiate addict living on the street who most probably at this point had left for dead because he had destroyed every relational bridge that existed um, in order to pursue his addiction. But somewhere along the line, Christ sought him and saved him. Now, church, how are any of us any different from Zacchaeus? If you've been listening to Joel, teach us the Ten Commandments. How would you ever escape the sense of your own wretchedness? How are any of us different than the opiate addict in the alley? If Jesus didn't come to seek and save you when you were lost, what real difference would there be? And He didn't come to seek and save you because inherently, you are worthy of His seeking and saving. He came to seek and save you because He is the God who seeks and saves the lost. And His purpose from the beginning was to redeem a people for Himself to make His name great in all the earth. And He's doing that. And I want to encourage your heart, Christian. I want to encourage your heart. Jesus hasn't stopped seeking and saving. And for you who, I want to speak to you maybe who have more years in Christ. You're going to face trials and God is going to discipline you. And all of that is the seeking of your Father in heaven. It's the hound dog of heaven coming after you to make you what you could not be without His fatherly loving kindness and discipline in life. It's His continual pursuit of you. Maybe if you're younger in your faith and just the, the Holy Spirit is just shining light on all of your sin. But the Holy Spirit is still shining light on all of my sin. 21 years into this following of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is still shining light on all of my sin. Right? That doesn't stop. It ought not to stop. It ought not to stop. Has it stopped? not a good sign when it stops. But I want to encourage you, as sin is just becoming increasingly known to you, that this is what the Holy Spirit does. Your sin, in other words. The Holy Spirit shining light on your sin. This is, not, this, is, this, is, this is the pursuit of Jesus to you. This is Jesus teaching you, hey, don't think so highly of yourself because you're just a lot more like Zacchaeus than you knew before. This is Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. And He's showing you how lost you really were versus how lost you just thought you were. You weren't just as lost as much as a few mistakes. You were as lost as Zacchaeus. You were as lost as Francis Thompson. And so be encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. 
not discouraged by it. God is humbling you, showing you that Jesus is the only Savior, and he is ridding you of any thought that you are yourself. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, Christ came to seek and save the lost. And if you have any of those thoughts like Zacchaeus, would Jesus be kind to me if I came to him? Would Jesus receive me if I, if I showed up and ran down the road and I wanted to see and seek who Jesus was? Would He be kind to me? Oh, He would be more than kind to you. He would give 10,000 kindnesses to you now and an immeasurable amount of riches and grace to you in eternity. He would receive you unto salvation and forgive you of all that you've ever done. <coughs> Or maybe you're here and you're the crowd. He's gone into the house of a sinner. You know, the world is a merciless place. Right? And all social media done has helped show how merciless the world is. But it's always been that way. It's not like social media actually really changed something. It's just giving expression to what was already there. It's a merciless place. You know? I mean, you do one wrong thing. It's like all the world is at present in the United States of America is how can I take a 50 caliber for anything you say? I'm not, I'm not even talking about, I mean, anything you say or do. Like, how can I take a 50 caliber to your life with my words? That's pretty much all the world is, is functioning as. How can I, you know, but a 50 cal is... In the back of a, think about the 50 cal in the back of a Jeep or a truck. Is that right? Is that fair? Forgive my ignorance, you who gave honorable service in the military. You think about that weapon just unloading, you know? And that's all our words have become today. And so. I'll close with this in case you have some of the crowd left in you. Forgive me, but it's a disc golf illustration. There's a, on, on Facebook, there's a disc golf, you know, buy, trade, sell, feedback group. So, you know, if you rip somebody off, they're probably going to post your name in the feedback group, like, don't buy from this person, they'll rip you off. But it's really just awful. It's just awful. Because somebody makes like one little mistake and like their life just gets destroyed by hundreds of people. And, and it's fascinating to see in the disc golf community because I see actually a lot of generosity in the disc golf community that's actually pretty remarkable. I'll talk more about that someday. But so there was this, there's this disc golf retail store and They've been in business for like 15 years, and I won't say who it is because it's not necessary, but um, they accidentally pulled the wrong disc off their shelf, honest mistake, sent it to a person, I think, and uh, the person got the wrong disc and, you know, like kind of just lost it over it and just said, you know, ac accused them of false advertising, like they were actually advertising a different disc and then just sending them something close. 
but it was actually just an honest mistake, and they did everything they could to try to fix it for the guy as quickly as they could. And you know, if you have if you're shipping thousands of disks a week, it's not really that crazy, right? To think I would accidentally grab the wrong one, put it in a box, and send it to somebody. I did that. I did that when we were selling disks uh, last fall. I was like, man, eventually I'm probably going to send the wrong one, you know. And some of these look pretty close, you know. And um, and uh, so when I did that, I was like, and just keep it. I'll send you the right one, you know, no big deal. But they try to fix it, but the guy just kind of loses it on them and just starts criticizing them everywhere for false advertising, which wasn't even true, right? So this kind of goes on for like six months, and they try to take care of it, and they try to take care of it, and then it kind of goes away for a while, and then all of a sudden he pops up again, criticizing them in a different sales group, criticizing them again for this whole thing. And, uh, well, the gal who um, uh, is an important part of this company, she kind of... <laughs> Gets, she's kind of over it at this point. So she screws up pretty bad. So then she finds, because this guy's been, I mean, this is like a small family business. And this guy's just berating them over something so stupid, right? Well, she loses it. She's had enough. So she finds out somehow that the guy's, the guy's girlfriend has a hair salon. And so she goes on the hair salon review, <laughs> review page and leaves a bad review about the hair salon that she's never been to. Because she's like, well, maybe he'll learn what it's like to constantly, you know, the harm it does to a family business to sit and constantly criticize it, right? You're like, okay, bad move. Right? But I kind of understand it. <laughs> you know? But she's extremely apologetic about the whole thing. She knows she just got out of hand. She knows she let vengeance get the best of her. She's just trying to just, like, say, I screwed up. And the more she says she screwed up, the more the 50 caliber comes out, just blasting and blasting and blasting. And uh, so, you know me, I, I just like to run contrary to the crowd that's like that because I get sick and tired of the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of people. And so I just said, hey, everyone, I'm going to go buy um, a disc. I'm going to go buy a disc from them and uh, just out of support, and I hope you'll join me. Some people... Some pe all people make mistakes, right? All people make mistakes. Some people actually try to make their mistakes right, and they're apologetic about it. Um, other people just continue, and they're in the self-righteous tirades, you know? Because I was just trying to extend some mercy into a situation. It's like, if you have any sense at all, you know, a 50 caliber is not the right weapon here. So I went and bought a disc, and, and then, but see, here's the thing. The moment you show mercy to a situation like this, right, what do you think happened? Do you think everybody was like, in response to my simple comment, you think everybody was like, yeah, yeah, I think I'll go do that. I actually think that's the right move here. No, no, it's like, no, it's 50 caliber time, right? Like, you know? <laughs> What in the, you know, how, how would you ever think that? I would never, you know. She stalked out the guy's girlfriend and tried to destroy her business. I'm like, she just was stupid. You know, for a moment, she was stupid. And how more apologetic could she be? See, the world is a merciless place. It hates mercy. It just despises that Christians would be the kind of people who seek and save the lost after their God. Just wait. 
Just wait till our church has a prominent center in our community as a part of our community who we see with grace, who we receive with grace, and who we help grow and change in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just wait. It's 50 caliber time from the world. But our God is the seeker and savior of the lost. May it be so and more ever true in this church. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, thank you for this great kindness that you show Zacchaeus that we might always know who our Lord Jesus is, that he is the Son of Man, descended from on high, condescending to sinners like us to seek and save that which was lost. Oh God, we give you praise that we have Christ, and we give you praise that all we have is him if we lose everything else. He is He is ours. You are ours, Lord Jesus, and we are yours. We know you and are known by you. And we praise you for finding us and pursuing us until we are found. In Jesus' name, amen.